It's my great pleasure to have Dr. Sandra Bloom on the line with me from the United States. Uh, Dr. Bloom's a, a well-respected mental health activist and, and worker, and it's my great pleasure to have you on the show with me today, Sandra. Thanks, Karen. It's it's great to be here. So to start with, could you perhaps just talk to us a bit about you know your your personal uh, and professional journey coming to to develop this very important model, the sanctuary model, which is which is what you're most known for, I guess. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, I, I'm a psychiatrist by training and um, started a psychiatric unit in a general hospital about an hour and a half north of Philadelphia, which is a city on the East Coast between New York and Washington. And in 1980, we started that program and five years into it, we started to recognize through the experience of really getting in-depth um, information from our patients that they had gone through a lot of adversity and as children yeah. and often trauma uh, as adults. And we didn't know we didn't know what that meant. They came in with many different kinds of diagnoses and we were well trained, but we had not really been trained in what you do about trauma. Now, the, the whole diagnosis for PTSD didn't even enter the, the conversation until 1980. So in the 1980s, there just wasn't much known yet. We didn't have good research. Um, there wasn't much clinical attention that looked at how, what role does trauma play in the development of a wide variety of mental health problems and later physical problems. So we worked on that from 1985 to 1991. And by the time we got to 1991, we thought we really knew something about what needed to happen, how you had to treat people. <clears throat> And we moved our program and we called it the sanctuary. And we called it that because one of the first chapters on um, the treatment of Vietnam veterans here, um, a man named, a psychologist named Steve Silver talked about sanctuary trauma. And he was talking about what, expecting a protective environment and finding actually only more trauma. Yeah. And I, heard that and said, yeah, that's what many of my patients have experienced, um, going to mental health settings and actually not getting their needs met at all. So that's what made us call the program um, Sanctuary. What would it take to really create safe cultures within which people could heal and recover? Yeah. And we developed that. We worked with patients with that for the next 10 years. And then until 2001, when we had to close the program, it had been successful financially. It had been, um, was really helpful to people. People got better, um, but it didn't matter because our healthcare system was changing so radically that there was not sufficient funding in hospitals for specialty programs. Yeah. So we had to close it. <clears throat> and um, after that, um, I started working with a place in New York 
In 2005, we uh, developed a training institute. And since then, we've been developing um, a whole model for how do you go to a whole hospital or a whole system and get everyone focused on creating a safe environment. And that's really what the sanctuary model is about. How do you create a safety culture? You've mentioned the story of your, your veteran coming back and try, uh, trying to find sanctuary, but actually experiencing more trauma at the hands of the existing system. How much damage has been done to people in that uh, real biodeterminist, that kind of old model? Is something as fundamentally addressing uh, human rights uh, as I think embodied beautifully in the sanctuary model you know, what's the prevalence of you know your kind of framework? What's most common in in services at the moment in the estates? Well, <clears throat> I think we're um, we are in the middle of a real uh, we meaning people in mental health, social services, and even healthcare. Um, many of us are in the middle of a of a real paradigm shift uh, mm. because the, this whole issue trauma and adversity um, makes you think differently really about pretty much everything you've learned up until now. Um, And certainly the, um, you know, the diagnostic categories that we use to try to organize the enormous complexity that we are faced with in mental health, which is what I know the best, that enormous complexity we try to organize with these labels, but the labels don't have anything to do with causality. So uh, when we're, when we're understanding now that trauma and adversity, which is a much broader topic than trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's, we don't have a, we don't have a good word in English for what we're actually talking about because we're talking about, relentless stress, toxic stress, so when bad things happen to you when you're little and still developing, and then traumatic stress. And we don't have one word that captures the enormity of this topic. Hmm. And that's a problem because people hear trauma and they think, oh, 9-11, or that for you guys, they think the bushfires, right? But um, it's actually much broader than that. So we're really now understanding because of ACEs a lot about how things like neglect damage people's development and um, all of the adversity that goes along with poverty and racism and sexism. It's all, it's all of a piece, but it all says that there's a reason. There are reasons why people end up in a mess. And that is, is really important because usually when people end up in a mess, they don't, it's about, as far as they're concerned, it's about them. They did something wrong. They were bad. They were born that way, whatever. Yeah. And what all of this discourse means is, oh, well, no, yeah, you interacted with those things that happened to you, but stuff happened. And the way we summarize that is what a a colleague of mine said when we were in a team meeting back in 1991. He said, you know, the way we've changed, we've stopped asking people what's wrong with you. And now we ask them what happened. And that's changed everything. And that, that is, 
the best way I've found to really articulate what this paradigm shift is about, it changes the way we look at human nature with a, with a great deal more empathy um, towards our own species and how delicate we are and how complex we are and how things can go really badly if we don't get what we need, particularly when we're children. But even when or we're adults and bad things have happened, if we don't get what we need, we're going to stay stuck. Talking about it as a paradigm shift is, um, yeah, is is almost under under articulating it in, in a way, isn't it? Which is uh, a ridiculous thing to say, I know, but I'm just emphasising the enormity of the of the challenge. I was here at a mental health conference uh, uh, only a year or so ago. And you know, had leading lights in Australia. Uh, you know, psychiatrists and you know, pe- in people in the mental health field, people like Dr. Pat McGorry, who certainly our listeners will know about, um, an important you know mental health uh, you know, figure in mental health here. And I was staggered. I mean, I'm someone who comes from, I guess, a more alternative uh, health kind of uh, paradigm with uh, with with my approach to mental health uh, personally. But I was staggered at how much these uh, professionals were talking uh, about uh, things that really resonated very deeply with me and were very explicit, uh, shockingly explicit about how much the dying paradigm, I guess, has has failed. But there, there's still, you know, there's a big gap. And I, I guess, as you're saying, there's a big struggle at the moment between, I guess, the theory and, you know, the, the realisations that are being made and what uh, what's actually hitting the ground in terms of our services. I mean, it's it seems to be happening rapidly, but um, it's a it's a huge shift, isn't it? It's it's a huge shift, and it's a huge shift in every sector. So since we for the last twenty years, I've really had so much contact with pretty much all of our service systems. So child welfare, um, the mental health, healthcare, particularly the pediatricians. Uh, can take this on board faster than other specialties in medicine. And now um, uh, corrections and um, adult and juvenile uh, corrections and probation and the judiciary and law enforcement and schools are all uh, slowly coming around to the recognition that while we need we need to know something about trauma. We need to know what it's doing to people. And it's amazingly gratifying when you can put it into words, you know, bridge the professional gaps that exist and um, have people go, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it does. I mean, it just makes more sense. Yeah. It's not psychobabble. Yeah. Um, and it ties to the way the brain works and the way development happens and the way the body functions. Um, and it and it helps us understand a lot of why many so-called alternative approaches hmm. are so effective. Yeah. And why they help people. Yeah. Um, it makes sense because they're 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 addressing pieces of wholeness and health that have been missing in our existing paradigm. Now, I've introduced you as a mental health activist, and uh, before I did so, I kind of, uh, I meant to ask you whether you were comfortable with that title, but we can't talk about this this issue of trauma without um, 
I guess, raising the, uh, you know, the trauma of, uh, of our Indigenous brothers and sisters and pointing to the horrific crime that's been committed against refugees in this country. And I know you have a president at the moment that's not much better. What responsibility do you see, uh, you know, mental health professionals having, you know, you know healers of, of whatever uh, stripe to you know, to be advocates and activists on behalf of the traumatised and, and to, I guess, have some kind of, you know, political voice addressing these traumas at the hands of powerful interests. I'm very moved that you would call me a mental health activist. Um, uh, I think we have a, a critical role to play. Um, I think that, I think it's part of the the shift, actually, Um that people go through who become aware of this issue of trauma and adversity it's that you 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 no longer can remain silent because it's what i no longer am practicing psychiatry i am now um, a professor in the school of public health and so the reason for that is that I came to recognize that most all of these people, these thousands of people that we had treated in our psychiatric unit had problems that never should have happened, that were entirely preventable. And that was, I, I mean, it was appalling and a call to action for me. And that's what's driven me ever since is that, oh, we have to, be thinking about these problems and dealing with these problems in an entirely different way. And that's what I mean by a paradigm shift. I mean, this is big. This is nothing this big has happened since arguably the Renaissance in Mm. terms of thought, Mm -hmm. in terms of how we view human nature. Um, And so I think we all have to speak up. We have to, um, put ourselves out there with what we know. If you took the, all of the service sectors, so mental health, um, health care, social services, put us all in a very big room together, we know more now about human beings than has ever been known in the totality of human experience. Hmm. We, it's not integrated. The knowledge is very poorly integrated, but it's there. And that's our next big, big challenge, I think, is how do we, it's not either or, it's not that you need behavioral treatment alone or medicine alone or yoga alone. It's that we have to figure out what do we do for who, when, Um, how can we have a whole, um, a notion, a pathway of recovery and healing. And I don't think there's any way to get that without political activism. Um, certainly it is goes totally against the grain of where my country is right now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think we have to speak up. You, we are, we are always bearing witness. Uh, to the violence that is done to particularly the children in our culture. Come back to this this wonderful model that you've developed, uh, the sanctuary model. Um, 
you know, it's here in Australia, obviously, uh, going around the world. Talk to us a bit about, um, uh, you know, where where it's uh, where it's operating at the moment. How far it's kind of spread. Well, it's it's spread around certainly this country, I think, uh, um, and some in the UK, in Scotland, Ireland, and England. Um, but I think the the early adopters um, in terms of internationally were Australia. It was Australia. So um, I don't know. Maybe it's because of both of our colonial pasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that it, it is true. It's been really, um, it's been lovely to see, uh, actually, and um, and exciting. I think. Absolutely. So I, you know, I just kind of hope it continues. I keep writing, so <laughs> the word gets out. Just before I do let you go, you just tell us where where our listeners can yeah access some of your your work. The best place is sanctuaryweb.com. And all of the articles that I've written are um, up there. 